Hello and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from academic discussions happening in our journal to interviews with filmmakers and artists and global perspectives on health and medicine from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and to the humanities because life happens at the intersections. Hello and welcome back to the Medical Humanities Podcast. I'm Brandy Skilache and today we're here with Henry Ng, MD, MPH. He is a physician, educator and advocate for LGBTQ plus health. The focus of his work is to provide culturally and clinically competent care to medically vulnerable populations. Dr. Ng has been involved in LGBTQ healthcare since 2007 and currently he's a physician in the Center for LGBTQ plus health and transgender surgery and medicine program at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. Welcome, Henry. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm so glad you could be with us. Um, as you know, one of the topics we've been talking about at the Medical Humanities Journal and also at our blog and podcast has been accessibility. And of course, in a year like this one, that seems to matter more than ever. So I wanted to bring you on to talk about how accessibility affects people who are LGBTQ and other, you know, sort of gender non-conforming people and how they try to access healthcare in the systems here in the United States. Wow, that's a, a really important topic. And it's so layered and, uh, and complex, but I, I definitely will you know, try to take a stab at it. Um, and I'll definitely say that the challenges that sexual and gender minority people, you might hear me say LGBTQ plus or LGBTQ or sexual gender minority people, I'm going to use those all interchangeably uh, when I talk about uh, folks who are otherwise are not heterosexual or cisgender. Um, I, I think that all these challenges that they already have been experiencing for decades that have been slowly improving in some ways um, have now really been laid bare by uh, the, the COVID pandemic um, because it, it really has fleshed out and, and demonstrated for all of us how folks with less privilege uh, have more health problems, more challenges in uh, navigating the world to, to live their best lives and to be uh, most healthy. Um, but I think I'll, I'll take a stab at this by thinking of a, a, a one model that I think is really useful. Um, there, and this comes from the uh, Institute of Medicine's um, paper back in 2011 that uh, talked about uh, LGBT health. Now it's, I think, under the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, but, but back then, um, there was a framework that looked at um, minority stress theory and social ecology uh, to think about all these kind of factors, both intrapersonal, interpersonal, structural, um, societal that I think all can contribute to um, health disparities and decreased health outcomes. And, and the piece within that is accessing health. So I, I think if you think of the, the kind of the big structure concerns and issues, um, a lot of health organizations historically haven't been uh, overtly welcoming for sexual and gender minority people. They haven't demonstrated that there was any particular interest in providing them care that recognized uh, this part of their identity uh, and that it was important or valuable. And I think we see that um, from little things like, well, if you're a transgender person and you have only binary bathrooms, 
for men and for women, and you're a non-binary person, do you really feel safe accessing a restroom and a healthcare facility for you if it's not single use? I mean, navigating those spaces are so important, right? So if you can't even figure out if you can safely use the restroom in a place, will you really even be able to go there for your, for some of your other care? Um, a, a lot of the experiences that patients have told me about over the years um, had to do, especially with our trans patients and our non-binary patients, um, they told me about frank exclusion and discrimination that they faced. So healthcare professionals and providers have frankly told them, I don't take care of people like you. I don't do these types of things. Um, so they, they felt rejected or excluded um, for, you know, sometimes, sometimes just basic care. They, uh, we, we kind of jokingly say there's no, no such thing as lesbian, you know, broken leg syndrome. Um, <laughs> right. So that meaning that, you know, if you happen to be a sexual gender minority person, if you broke your leg, taking care of your leg is still, you know, a thing in medicine that those of us who have learned how to do that do. Um, there are more specific things in terms of, you know, taking care of LGBTQ people, for example, like hormonal care um, for trans mm -hmm. folks. That is, you know, something that is a, that is a more focused health issue. But again, then again, I always uh, tell the trainees I work with, this is a rocket science. There's a body knowledge behind that. We can learn it. So I, I think that some of the interactions with health professionals themselves, and I say broadly health professionals, we're talking about all different kinds of caregivers, whether they're physicians, physician assistants, um, our many, many nurses, um, social workers, physical therapists, occupational therapists, pharmacists, all the folks who are mm -hmm. part of the healthcare team, you know, um, right. and I oftentimes think we can lack knowledge. Oh, yes, too. absolutely. Mental health care, psychology, therapy, counseling. Um, all those pieces uh, are super important for medical care, uh, uh, very broadly, surgical care, et cetera. And so there's that human piece where if your provider and professional that you're working with doesn't demonstrate both um, some cultural sensitivity to your identity and have some nimbleness and agility to be able to address you in the way that you want to be addressed and however you identify, that's respectful. Um, that doesn't feel great. And at the same time, we also need to have clinical uh, knowledge of how to take care of people and know when gender and sexuality concerns are maybe at the center of a conversation and we make sure that we have the appropriate knowledge to care for somebody and also when it might be in the periphery like when i was jokingly talking about lesbian broken leg syndrome so sometimes it's an issue sometimes it's not but always it's in the background um, so those are the interpersonal things we have some other structural things too that we know that um, sexual and gender minority folks oftentimes um, have challenges with employment and accessing healthcare um, insurance. We know that insurance is right. necessary but insufficient, you know, for yes. providing and care. I, I just right? quickly, because a yeah. lot of our listeners are um, are not necessarily based in the United States. We have about a 50-50 yeah. mm -hmm. audience split. So yes. Yes. Um, Quickly, for those in the audience who are not in the United States, could you say a little bit about how insurance can be really prohibitive in oh, the United absolutely. States for, for care? Absolutely. So um, the United, and, and again, here I am, I'm not a health policy wonk, so to speak, but I do have, <laughs> you know, a working knowledge of um, how healthcare works in the United States. So uh, basically for, uh, in, in, in the U.S., if you are seeking healthcare, uh, obviously, it, it, the, the service needs to be paid for by someone. So if you are employed, the health care uh, can be purchased through your employer if your employer you know, is a large enough organization or group that offers health care insurance for you to purchase. 
okay? So that's through um, some private organization. And the United States, we have large companies like Blue Cross Blue Shield, Aetna, uh, United Healthcare, things, uh, groups like that, that will provide the opportunity for patients to um, get uh, coverage. So in case they are hospitalized or sick, or if they otherwise just need uh, different types of medical or surgical care, or referrals or medicines, the insurance will help pay for a portion of that or all of that, depending on you know what the plan looks like. Um, for those who are unemployed or for those who are um, older than 65 um, or under self-employed self or otherwise under a certain um, income level, uh, there are public forms of health insurance and we call these Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, Medicare for those who are older generally, and then Medicaid for those living with uh, disabilities and, and also those who are um, under-resourced or uh, sometimes not employed. So public forms of insurance also exist to pay for healthcare services. Um, they don't always cover the same services in the same way. So sometimes getting medications that you would like to have uh, for your treatment may be excluded or simply not covered for one reason or right, another or more right. expensive. Yeah. Um, and one of the, mm -hmm. the issues there is like, who gets to decide what's a condition that exactly. matters? And I think that's yeah. what really, it's particularly I'm thinking if you're, uh, if you're a non-binary person and mm -hmm. you're saying that you need treatment and as, as so often happens, non-binary doesn't fit in any of the boxes. And so someone goes, well, I don't, I don't see what the problem is. Why, why should we cover this treatment? Right. So yeah, it, it ends up being very complicated for that reason. And then the last part I'll say is that there are a large number of people who are not insured at all. They're mm -hmm. in a situation where they're not employed. They may not know that they can apply for public health insurance. Um, they may have recently lost their job and are between forms of employment, or they're in a kind of employment um, that doesn't offer uh, you know very good health care uh, options to purchase, or, they, or simply they can't afford to purchase it. Um, even on um, the different markets that we have for the Affordable Care Act, um, which is one of the laws that was created during the Obama administration to help address issues related to poor access of health care. So there, there are a lot of holes and challenges of just getting the financial coverage and support to pay for stuff. Uh, so that's one big, broad barrier. And even within the health insurance universe, um, as you just alluded to, Brandy, there are exclusions. So both public and, and private healthcare may certainly choose to not pay for or cover uh, a, a certain type of treatment or medication. Um, and with our current administration, there's not a lot of opportunity to, um, uh, to appeal that. Um, previously, there was through the Department of Health and Human Services. A lot of us would um, actually make some concerns and complaints through this part of the Affordable Care Act. It's called 1557. This was a non-discrimination piece. And we would say, hey, if you didn't, you know, XYZ insurance company or pharmacy or whomever, if you're not paying for the service or you're not providing the service, this is a discrimination. This is wrong. And we were actually able to make a lot of changes uh, through sending emails and phone calls. I actually did that early uh, on during the, the, the first part of... Um, the uh, implementation of, of this law, I would call on behalf of a lot of our patients who said, hey, my hormonal medications for my care as a transgender person, you know, they're being rejected and I don't know why. There's not a reason why. So we'd say, okay, let's make a complaint and, you know, uh, advocate on your behalf. And for many people that ended up changing 
um, some of the, the access that they had. We saw uh, Medicare, uh, rather Medicaid, uh, first Medicare, then Medicaid, um, actually expand and begin coverage of some of uh, these hormonal care services for trans people, and including things like pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, coverage, medications that we use um, to prevent HIV transmission. Um, and you'll hear us talk about PrEP um, when we talk about that type of medicine use. Um, they're very expensive medicines. And, um, you know, getting these types of uh, medications for our patients, a lot, uh, providing access to them is, is really important. Um, but there can be so many, you know, just challenges and exclusions for those things. Uh, so, you know, now with um, the political uh, environment the way it is, um, when there are issues with things not being covered or rejected, we still do the best we can to appeal. Uh, but simply there are fewer, um, you know, levers that we can pull in order to advocate for our patients. Um, and we'll have to see what happens moving forward after the 3rd of November this year. <laughs> in the United <laughs> States, in case you don't know, that is the, <laughs> that's election day. So we will see what will happen um, because, you know, depending on... Um, what uh, what leaders we have in the White House, uh, we may see, you know, continuation of the current policies, or may, we may see um, a significant change in direction of those. And I, for one, am, am advocating for situations where we're in a uh, an environment where we can provide more care for more people. And, and I, I think that's, you know, what I would be hoping for. Well, and I think um, getting back to something you alluded to earlier about how the pandemic has changed things too. Um, and we, we've had been having some conversations with disability activists as well mm -hmm. in a similar situation is, you know, in the best of times, in the best of times with the best of situations, when the economy is good and people aren't suffering from pandemic illness, you still have discrimination against vulnerable populations. You mm -hmm. still have discrimination in insurance, in medicine, among providers, as you've said, against LGBTQ, against disability, uh, against, you know, minorities, uh, racial minorities, fiscal minorities, you still have that. Now you add on top of that political, you know, kerfuffle. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> That's and a very nice way to put it. <laughs> yeah. I was just trying to think of a word that was polite um, <laughs> and and a pandemic. And suddenly there's these pressures and the pressures are financial and the pressures are medical and the pressures right. are, you know, all of these different things. So you look at all of that on uh, le levered on top of a system that was already not being fair to these groups yes. of people. And so I am sure that you've seen a greater um, incidence of stress on your patients, which itself oh, is yes. a medical condition. Absolutely. I, I think that um, the the stresses of uh, of the pandemic directly and indirectly for sexual and gender minority people, especially as those identities intersect with uh, racial uh, ethnic identities, those who are living in under-resourced communities, those who are um, differently able, those who, you know, find themselves kind of in this onion peel layer of, I have all these identities and they all are, you know, not helping me where I am because of the way society right. and structures have created the universe. Uh, <laughs> it's not me that's the problem. Right. Um, though we are seeing a lot of folks who are stressed beyond belief and their typical resources that they would use for support are also taken away. 
So we have to socially distance. We have to wear a mask. We have to use technology when we can try to connect both for healthcare and everything else. Um, I mean, think about people who have the privilege of using Instacart uh, to get food delivered to their homes. In the U.S., we have many different types of app uh, uh, services for our smartphones that we could afford, if we can afford it, to have food delivery, to have all these things that we could get. But again, this belies privilege. You have to have a smartphone. You have to have internet access. You have to have resources to pay for these things because it's more expensive than otherwise going to the store yourself. Um, so we see that you know our, our, our folks who oftentimes are sexual and gender minority people who are black and brown, who are differently abled, they're the folks actually who are, are essential workers in many different ways, not just in healthcare, but everywhere else. So they work in service industries still, um, preparing our food and um, providing all these services that we have day to day. Uh, when we wanna go to a gas station, who's working there? Who's providing the care? Who is providing the service? And these are folks who are exposed to COVID every single day. They may or may not contract it. Some folks already have poor health to begin with, um, or they have not been able to access healthcare and health issues that they have have already progressed a bit more. So that places them at higher risk for a negative outcome should they get COVID. Um, they can't avoid COVID as, as well as other people if they are reliant on public transportation, for example, um, as opposed to driving with their own car. So you can't exactly socially isolate when you're on you know, a large train or a bus or some other type of thing. So those are all those issues. And then their supports have been eliminated. Uh, uh, folks in our communities um, have faced different struggles and challenges, including those in mental health, substance use, and substance abuse. So you know, uh, groups like Alcoholics Anonymous or coming out support groups and other types of um, social support have moved to an online platform. So for those who have the tools to access them, that's great to, well, great in air quotes, but if you don't, certainly not. And even if you can access them, I have a lot of patients who've told me it just doesn't feel the same. You know, I don't have the camaraderie and support of these people, these human beings right next to me where I feel like I belong. Now I'm still all by myself all day, but I get to be, quote, with somebody, unquote, uh, for my social support for maybe a half an hour to an hour, assuming that my Wi-Fi worked that day. And I didn't get dropped from the Zoom call or whatnot. Yeah. So, Which, I, incidentally, I, I, yeah. listeners, we had that problem at the beginning of our, of our, exactly. of our podcast today. <laughs> and, and, and to say perfectly well, I am privileged. I have a smartphone. I have Wi-Fi. And I right. still have these issues. So yes. I, I'm really sensitive to my patients who do not. I use, um, you talk about accessibility. Uh, part of my work in seeing patients um, is providing both virtual care as well as in-person care. About a third of my visits per week are virtual, um, meaning I, I don't see them, you know, obviously in person. I'm, I'm interacting with somebody using um, technology of some kind, whether it's a smartphone or a regular phone or, you know, a computer. Um, and sometimes it works great, but you know, I, I work at a very well-resourced organization. But the technology sometimes fails just from the technology platform standpoint. Sometimes the the applications are slow or buggy or there's been some upgrade that not everyone knows about, even at large systems like uh, the one I work for. And our patients struggle to get through. And that's even when they have resources. And then we have folks who might be a bit older then they're less comfortable using forms of technology or they simply don't have Wi-Fi access. They do not have a smartphone. 
we can't do those face-to-face -face type of virtual visits. We're reliant on phone calls. I have a difficult time assessing if someone has a pneumonia on yeah. a phone call. But right. sometimes that's actually what I have to do. Yeah. So yeah. the way we even practice medicine, you know, has changed such a great way as we try to figure out how to help people with more limited tools at times. And also thinking about where they are um, in terms of their social situations and their immediate environment, um, that also it limits the way we can interact with them. So th those are some of our challenges. Yeah, and I think that's that's really um, really important because what you're bringing up of of course issues of access are never in a single area. It's not as though access is over here. Mm -hmm. Access permeates every aspect of our lives. Um, I just want to say a few more things about uh, about who you are and what you do, because I know uh, in addition to being a doctor, which you are, you <laughs> are an associate professor at uh, Case Western Reserve University, which was my alma mater. Um, and I believe you work for a journal too, are you not? An associate editor for the Annals of LGBTQ Public and Population Health. I am. So I'm, I'm one of a I want to say a large number. <laughs> there, there, there are over 50 of us, so there are many, many, many. <laughs> so a part of Still a matters, large man. crew of absolutely part of a large crew of folks who um, have a particular interest in uh, both public health, population health, and how it intersects with sexual and gender minority people's lives. And and uh, uh, so yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, uh, you know, working with this this group of of. Uh, leaders and and thought leaders and, and whatnot it's been really wonderful yeah and i know if i'm not mistaken you're also um you also do a lot with diversity and inclusion initiatives and that's something that is is really important and still um one of the one of the things that we'll be addressing in our uh in, in next year's themes and content for the journal is just how much um institutions and i work for a journal i work for an academic journal and academic journals and academic uh systems in general tend to be really terrible at diversity and inclusion um <laughs> so it's it, it's true and it's it's hard and sometimes there aren't there aren't solutions um readily available and so a lot of times the solution is just admitting that there are these huge problems that we have to address uh and speaking of which what i'd like to end with is Given all of these situations, all these issues of access that are made so much more difficult by the pandemic, um, do you have thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners uh, for the future, some sparks of hope or or ideas for us, that ways that we can help, ways that we can kind of think about things in the future to, to help us live in a better world? Mm. I think it's definitely important to, to, to have hope and to think about ways that we can grow and adapt uh in this type of environment um i, I think that you know one thing to to re reflect on is certainly that the world has now changed fundamentally and it's probably going to stay very different for a long time it's going to affect us in terms of our travel our interactions with each, with each other how we um conduct our communications personally and virtually um i think that there are a lot of things that we have seen that um may be at least some changes for the better. Um, some of these changes actually are the use of technology to reach, um, I think, people who are otherwise more geographically isolated. Um, for some of our patients that we care for who are in communities uh, maybe two, three, four hours away, and they still um, elect to come to see us, 
um, because either we offer care that's not available in their home community or we deliver it in a way that they feel is more affirming for them. They choose to come to see us. And this is true for healthcare organizations that provide care for LGBTQ people, I think, around the country. Folks will choose to drive 35 minutes or more you know, uh, regularly to see somebody for those reasons. Um, one thing that you know, our use of technology has done is to make things a little bit easier, at least at times, um, to be able to connect with a provider and to get the care that you need virtually without having to slog, you know, 100, 200, 300 miles in order to see somebody. That's a very resource intense uh, uh, ask of our patients um, in order to do that. Um, I think that we're also seeing, you know, the healthcare field itself adapt to um, education and learning in ways that, uh, you know, are, are helpful. We're using technology ourselves to, you know, continue uh, to meet and to uh, learn about different health issues and topics. And I'm actually seeing at the Cleveland Clinic, for example, some inclusion of LGBTQ content in that. And it's always been a challenge for busy uh, providers, busy health professionals who are running around trying to take care of uh, our patients from day to day, but to still, you know, get a learning in. Uh, and the virtual tools have made it a, a bit easier for that to happen, which means we can actually spread messages and share messages and concerns and have these types of conversations and learn how we can do things better. Um, and this includes our diversity inclusion work as well. So I, I think that, you know, this has created a, a bit more um, ability to network and to share ideas and to communicate. So I think that's very positive. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful to see that we'll have a lot of creative ideas coming forward in the next year about how we continue to grow and, and um, improve the way that we provide care for people. Um, but I think that one of the most important things that we need to do in the United States as Americans is to make sure that we have our voices and our concerns heard. So that's you know using your voice and a big piece of that is voting. So I, I'm going to remain as apolitical as possible because that's necessary for me. But what I will say is, re regardless of who you uh, you want to support as our leadership locally um, or nationally, um, you have a voice. And this is one of the, the, the rights and privileges that we have as Americans. And this is not something that's afforded um, necessarily the same way um, around the world. I, I do think it's a very powerful thing that we get to use. And if we don't get to use, if we don't use it, we have squandered this opportunity. So I, I think one of the most important things that we can do is to use our voices, use our ballots, vote for the change that we want to see, and to do that and encourage our friends to do the same. Thank you so much, Henry. And I'm really, really pleased that you could be with us today. And I hope that you'll join us again another time. Brandy, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me to participate today. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Stay in touch by reading the journal or our blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We're also on Twitter at medhams underscore BMJ or find us on Facebook. Until next time. Mm -hmm.